So, just to, by way of um, reminder, the letter to the Hebrews was written to a group of Christians from a Jewish background in the first century, most likely in Rome. And persecution has begun. As a matter of fact, it's talked about here in chapter 12. Persecution has begun, and they are really seriously wavering, considering whether they might return to Judaism, because Judaism was a protected religion under Roman law, Christianity wasn't. For a time, the Romans didn't know the difference. As long as they thought of Christianity as like a kind of Judaism, then it fit under that. But as time went on, the Romans began to realize that this Christianity is a new religion. Um, they actually charged the Christians with being atheists. You know that? That was, one of, that was one of the things that got them thrown to the lions and crucified was that they were atheists because they refused to worship the whole pantheon of gods. So in the Roman mind, that meant they were atheists. Um, Hebrews 12 is written to people who are weary and are in danger of losing heart. And, and here's what I want you to see and understand. It's not just that they're facing persecution. And maybe you're like me. I, 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 feel, I feel like anybody who's professed faith in Christ has probably thought this. I wonder how I would do if I were persecuted. You ever thought that? You ever like wondered, I wonder if I would have enough faith to endure persecution. But here's what you, what you need to understand. The issue that's going on is not just persecution, it's that persecution threatens to define reality for them. This is actually always true. Suffering is not just suffering. Suffering always fits into an interpretive grid. And that makes all the difference, as we're going to see as we go through this passage. God, through this portion of Scripture that we're going to read tonight, wanted to lift the imaginations of the Hebrews and wants to lift our imaginations tonight beyond what we see with our eyes, which are the struggle, the suffering. Wants us to see beyond that to grasp what is really real. True reality. Uh, one of my favorite quotes in this regard is by a guy named Rodney Clapp. And uh, it is this idea, I, I think I, was, I, I said this at our leadership meeting on, on Sunday. Hopefully you'll never have an experience coming into RUF where the person leading worship will say, let's just close our eyes and leave all the distractions of life at the door. Worship should never be about checking out and retreating. Worship should be a place of integration, not disintegration. It should be a place where you bring everything before the face of God and cry out to him, rage before him. All of that should be part of worship. And, and one of the, the quotes that's, that's really influenced my thinking on this, and I think it's exactly right, is this guy Rodney Clapp. He says this, Christian worship is practice in seeing through common sense. Christian worship is practice in seeing through common sense. To the world of the Apostle John's day, John is the one who wrote the book of Revelation, and that's what he's kind of referencing here. To the world of the Apostle John's day, common sense was that Rome was invulnerable, 
that Rome's Lord was Lord of the earth, but the church in its liturgy, in its worship, particularly in the book of Revelation, recalled itself to a different and true Lord. Worship is about seeing through common sense. Common sense says you're worth what you can produce. You're worth the grades that you get or what your parents think of you, what he or she thinks of you. But worship is a time to be oriented to reality. And whenever we come to God's word, that's what we're about. Having our eyes opened to reality should never be disconnecting us from reality. It should be reality is real. Struggle and suffering are real, but that's not all the reality that there is. And not all the reality there is can be seen with your eyes. So what do we do when we've grown weary? Consider Hebrews chapter 12. We'll start reading at verse 1. Follow along with me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder or author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The plain implication is that's coming. And have you forgotten the exhortation the word that addresses you as sons. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, the Father, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight pass for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Let's pray together and then we're going to dig into this passage. Lord, we thank you. This is a hard text, but it's a text that comes to us from one who loves us deeply. So help us to understand what you have for us here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.
So as I said, it's not just that they're being persecuted. You see how persecution is calling into question what it means to be a son or a daughter of God for them. That's the, that's the real issue. That's when the suffering provokes a crisis of faith. It's not just the suffering. It's how the suffering turns upside down their expectations of what it should feel like to be God's child. You see? Well, what do we do when we've grown weary? What does the writer of the Hebrews have for us? The first thing that we see, he says, fix your eyes and run the race. Look at verse 1. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the image is those who are in Christ who have died, but even now are before the throne of God, worshiping. And the picture here is that they are urging us on, cheering for us. You guys go out and watch the Nashville Half Marathon that runs right by Belmont, right? Yeah? When I was in college, Berkeley College Music, I don't know if, well, Tommy would know this because he went to Berkeley too. Like, the marathon runs, like, right by Berkeley. Like, where it ends, the Prudential Center, is like 150, 200 yards from Berkeley. And um, I, I remember, you know, I guess if you're in Boston in the summer, you should go, you know, to the Boston Marathon and go check it out and watch it. And I remember talking to a friend of mine, and they said, well, you know, it's fun to go watch it at the finish line. Yeah, that's cool. But I like to go watch it at Heartbreak Hill. Heartbreak Hill is 20 miles into the race. <laughs> and it's intense. But when you get above, when you get to the top of Heartbreak Hill, you can see the Prudential Center. It's in the distance, but it's there. And then it's downhill most of the rest of the way. But where they need the great cloud of witnesses is at Heartbreak Hill. It can help. And, and, and what, the, what the apostle is saying, or what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, you're not alone. And some of those that have went before you are cheering you on. It's kind of this fascinating thing. Again, if you think all of reality is what you can see, taste, smell, you're like, well, I don't see anybody. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying, open your eyes to more than just what you can see, taste, and touch. There is more to reality than that. Christianity is not about believing less. It's about seeing more. Something that is really there. We have this great cloud of witnesses. In other words, you're part of a bigger story. And that is of incredible help when you're suffering. Because one of the things that suffering tends to do is to isolate you and make you turn inward and turn away from other people. But the first thing he says is, you're not suffering alone. Even this church, yes, even if the whole church is suffering, you're still part of something even bigger than that. You're part of a story that God has been telling, that God has been working, that God is going to bring to a glorious and beautiful conclusion. Look at the very last verse. He talks about, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The whole, the whole section that we read is towards that end. That's what God is doing. And you need to see the big picture that you're now a part of. So look around. 
And then he says, throw off every weight. Now, I just have to tell you this. There's no other way to say this. Your sin may be causing some of your lack of zeal. Uh, The Puritans actually had this interesting thing. They used to counsel people to avoid and fight against sin because when you don't fight against sin, it makes you doubt the love of God. In other words, assurance that God loves you is connected to fighting against sin. If you never fight against sin, doubts will begin to creep into your heart about whether or not you're a true child of God at all. And it will just undercut any passion or power that you have for living the Christian life. Throw off every weight, the sin that so easily entangles. Throw it off. You know, some of us are just like kind of mourning and moping the fact that we don't feel the love of God more, but we're refusing to turn away from other things. And we just want God to just make it better without repentance. Now, I'm not talking about being saved or not, but assurance, knowing God loves you, feeling his love is the power to live the Christian life, especially when it's difficult. And if you're trifling with your sin, it undercuts your sense of God's love. It clouds your sense of his love. It doesn't change his love. If you're in Christ, his love for you will never change, but your sense of it can definitely be affected. So throw off, throw off those things that are entangling you, weighing you down. And then the key, look at Jesus. Now, in in, in the Greek here, this is a present participle, which means don't just take one little quick glance and then get back to, you know, back to your race. No, you run the race continually looking at him. He's not only the only one, you know, the ESV where it says that he's the founder. I like author better. It ties in better with the overall idea of the story that's being written, but also the author is the one, it, it was his idea. He's the author of your salvation. It's the one, it came from him. All praise and glory be to Jesus, the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith. That's good news, but you're to continually look at him. And you're to look at him not just because he ran the race better than anyone else, and hopefully we can sort of, you know, what would Jesus do? Well, I guess I should try to walk the way he walked and live the way he lived. That's not exactly the point. The the point is he's the one who gives us grace. As a matter of fact, as as it goes on here, it talks about how we're to consider him, and that's actually an accounting term. That's an accounting term in the Greek. It it basically means make a careful reckoning, count up the suffering that he endured, and compare it to yours. That's why we did that that litany. Like that's a list that is worth counting up. And because some of those things you probably don't think about. Did you ever think about why Jesus was circumcised? Why is an eight-day-old boy, was he cut Why was his flesh cut? Circumcision is a ritual that points to cleansing and the need for cleansing, but he didn't need that. He did it for his people. Just like when he went to be baptized, he didn't do that for him. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist was like, whoa, whoa, this doesn't make any sense. 
You should be baptizing me, not the other way around. And again, baptism, John the Baptist baptism, comes out of the Old Testament context. It's not the same as New Testament baptism. It's about cleansing in preparation for the coming of the Lord. And Jesus doesn't need to be cleansed. But he says to John, I'm doing this so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. In other words, I'm doing it on behalf of my people who do need to be cleansed. So Jesus began his redemptive work at the incarnation. Even being born in such a despicable circumstance, not at all befitting the king that he was, was part of the humiliation that he endured. As a matter of fact, theologians call the incarnation the state of humiliation. For him to take on human flesh and to live lowly was a state of humiliation. So we're to look at Jesus, we're to count him up. So much more than just looking at him as the model. You know, when I actually started working at Belmont like 24 years ago, the statement of faith was different than it is now. If, if you ask, what was Belmont, what did it mean to be a Christian university, here's what the statement of faith was. Jesus is the Christ, so we believe Jesus is the Christ and the model for personal behavior. That's it. I'd submit to you that that's not actually very Christian. It's not, because it says nothing about him being the savior for moral failure. But I suspect that there are some of you who think more about Jesus as the model for personal behavior, of which you don't measure up very well, than the savior for moral failure. But we are to consider his suffering that was for us, lest we grow weary. We're to count it up. In other words, there's real spiritual value and power in carefully reckoning, carefully counting up what Jesus suffered. Consider how lonely his race was. How difficult his race was. It's difficult to look at this world and see how broken it is. But what do you think it was like for Jesus? Because Jesus, unlike us, knew what it was supposed to look like. He knew true beauty in ways that we can only guess about. Consider how even his friends tried to turn him aside from finishing the race. In the Gospel of Luke, there's this amazing little phrase, I love it. After his disciples finally understand that he's the Christ, it says at that point, he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. Even though his friends tell him things like, well, you don't really need to go die. Can you imagine lecturing Jesus? <laughs> I hope you can. You probably do it. You just call it prayer. <laughs> you know, and so do I sometimes. But that's what, the, that's what the disciples did, right? There's like, no, Jesus, I don't think you understand. Like, you're the Messiah. You're not, you're not going to go die. And do you remember what Jesus says to his best friend, Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You don't think that broke Jesus' heart? You, don't, you can hear the pain in his voice when on the gar, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked his friends, just stay awake with me. On this night of all nights, it's all coming down tonight. Just stay with me. Stay awake and pray with me. 
and they don't. They fall asleep. He wakes them up. He asks them. He pleads with them again. They fall asleep again. But there's spiritual power and comfort for you in that. Because you ever find your mind wandering in prayer? You ever find that you don't even want to pray? How does Jesus regard people that don't want to pray? He wakes them up. <laughs> wakes them up and says, try again. Just pray with me. Be with me. Don't like sit in your shame and, and like hide from me. I want to be with you. Just wake up. Try again. I'm here cheering you on. That's the picture. And that's the point of that litany. I, I think that it's, that, that's what it means that worship can be formative. When you, when you kind of say a litany like that in church every week, you're reminded of all these things. Did you ever think Jesus doesn't know what it's like to be poor? Of course he knows what it was like to be poor. Of course he knows what it was like to be betrayed with a kiss. And probably some of you can relate. Jesus has endured all of that. And there's something to encourage us and to keep us going in every single thing Christ suffered. So that's the first part. Here's the second point. In order to not grow weary, you have to revise your idea of what it feels like to be a true beloved child of God. And it starts with Jesus. I think the thing that you should start with in thinking about what the Christian life should feel like, you should start with, what did it feel like for Jesus? For Jesus, the road to joy went through the cross. And so it does for all God's children. Look at this, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You see, the joy is after the cross. But he endures the cross to get to the joy. Psalm 22 talks about this, actually. Psalm 22 is this remarkable psalm written by David before crucifixion had even been invented. And it talks about a man being crucified, narrating being crucified. I mean, his hands are pierced. You know, that, that detail isn't in the New Testament at all. It's in Psalm 22 and it's in Isaiah 53, but the gospel accounts never talk about Jesus' hands being pierced. The gospel accounts are actually really very kind of, uh, I don't want to say shy, but they don't go into the gory details at all. So, he, Psalm 22 is somebody narrating being crucified, dying, and then the end of the psalm is completely bizarre because it talks about the spoils that he will inherit from this great victory. His people. You're like, that doesn't, it's one of those things like, it doesn't make sense until it actually happens. And then you go back and you're like, oh, like Jesus is like that missing puzzle piece that puts everything together. All these themes that didn't seem like they went together, they actually go together in this unbelievable, beautiful way. So what does it mean for joy to come through the cross? And remember, it says here, despising the shame. That's an important detail. Jesus did not enjoy the cross. He wasn't a stoic through the experience. And neither does he call us to be stoics in enduring suffering. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, hating it, for the joy that was set before him. And the true children of God are to do likewise. The true children of God, you see, are 
a bigger part of a bigger story. And the goal is not just getting through, not just survival. Um, I, I love these commercials. I, f I forget what, what they're for, but I've been seeing them a lot lately about okay is not okay. Have you seen, you seen any of these commercials? It's like, you know, the surgeon, you know, kind of walks in, you know, meets with the patient before surgery, and, and he's like, you know, I think I got a pretty good idea of what we're going to do here, you know. It, you know, I've, I've gotten my license back, and, you know, I think it's all going to be okay, you know, and the patient's like, what? And then the little tagline, you know, you know, merely okay is not okay, right? That's the point of the Christian life. Okay, just getting through it is not okay. The goal is glory and beauty and healing. And you've got to understand that to endure. Because, like one of the greatest understatements in the entire Bible, no discipline is pleasant at the time. <laughs> okay, yeah, duh. But it produces something. It produ See, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, imagine that God is not sleeping, but he's actually using suffering to make you more like his son, who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Because he thinks that that is the most beautiful you that there can be. Survival is not the goal. Beauty is. But the instruments that God uses to bring beauty out of rough-hewn stones like us hurts. But how important to know that the one who is at work loves us like his true sons and daughters. That's what he's saying. The true children of God are part of a bigger story that comes to this beautiful healing goal. You have to see struggle, your struggles, as part of the bigger story through which God is making not just you, but his bride more beautiful. I don't know, I think one of the interesting things is the way beauty, the idea of beauty has been deconstructed and reconstructed in our day, where, where people actually find beauty in the things that aren't perfect, even like you, you, you look at like even the fashion models, as much as like that's an oppressive view of beauty a lot, there's these fascinating kind of countercurrents of this person is beautiful because they're interesting. Like there's kind of imperfections that actually are seen as beautiful. I think that's actually a really redemptive kind of idea because that's the biblical idea that beauty is seen in this brokenness. Even Jesus still bears his wounds in his glorified body. He's still pictured in Revelation as a lamb with his throat cut. That's not a really pretty image, but it's actually a beautiful image. It's a beautiful image. A friend, friend of mine, Michael Card, wrote this beautiful song, Known by the Scars. Isn't that how he reveals himself? To Thomas, put your hand in my side. Then you'll know it's me. And you wouldn't be you without the scars that God is making part of this beautiful story. You have to see the bigger picture. You have to see the bigger picture. How 
can the cross be a doorway into joy? Because that's what it is for Jesus. Now, follow me. Think about suffering. Think about suffering you've endured, suffering that, that you might endure again. Sometimes you get in this place where, you know, you have a choice between suffering and, and, and disobeying God. Sometimes it's not so clear. Sometimes it's really clear. And, and sometimes it's really hard <laughs> to, to, to not run from potential suffering. Even if it's something like, I know I need to tell the truth, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to suck, right? Because of what, what's going to happen. But I know I have to do it, right? Listen, it's important in those times to consider this thing that you're so afraid of, Jesus took willingly. What are you afraid of if the truth be known? Shame? People running away? Jesus endured all of that. And here's the thing, he didn't have to because he didn't do anything wrong. But he willingly took the thing that you don't want to face. That's how the cross becomes a doorway into joy because in the midst of the suffering, you have actually this connection to what Jesus' love felt like for him. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way, but the love of Jesus felt like him screaming out on a cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what it felt like for Jesus. If you said, Jesus, do you love me? He would say, yes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the joy set before him, I will endure this. And thus, when you're in this place where you know, the, the, the suffering makes you wonder whether God loves you, you need to turn that around and say, hold on, this actually is a connecting point for what the love of Jesus felt like for him. Because I know for me, I would do anything, even betray God, to get away and to get out of this. Jesus had the opportunity to end it, to call down legions of angels and say, I'm done. I don't deserve this. These people, they're not really worth it because they're going to betray me anyway. He doesn't do any of that. He endures to the very end. Suffers to the very end. How can that not fill you with joy? Even in the midst of your suffering. And think of all eternity to be able to ponder that. Now, as I said, part of the reason that they become so weary is not just the suffering. It's the way that they're interpreting the suffering. And I just want to say a, a few more things about suffering. You know, this is not all the Bible has to say about suffering, okay? There's a lot the Bible has to say about suffering. But there are a few things here that are worth bringing out. First is, suffering brings clarity. Suffering forces the question, am I a child of God? Who is God anyway? That's actually not bad. It's better to have those questions raised than to just live in blissful ignorance and never ask those questions. And suffering has a way of getting you down to kind of brass tacks, down to what do I actually believe? Suffering brings focus. This passage in Psalm 119 is fascinating. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep thy word. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. Do we believe that? Suffering drives us to Jesus. It gets us experientially acquainted with the frustration of life in a fallen world. And like I said, he understands it greater than you ever will. Suffering connects us with what Jesus endured 
because of his love for us, what it meant for him. And suffering connects us to each other because we're one body and we're part of a bigger story. But as I said, it's not just suffering that's the problem. It's the narrative we believe about what the suffering means. And this is, this is a fascinating thing, but you live in a pretty remarkable time. We live in a pretty remarkable time. Really a somewhat unique time in the history of the world. Ancient people, it could be argued, suffered more than most modern people, particularly in the West, with medicine and all these kinds of things, better food, all the sorts of things that we have, okay? Now, I'm not making light of your suffering, but people in the ancient world suffered intensely. And yet, suffering in the ancient world never provokes people to saying that they don't believe in God. In our day and age, suffering is one of the number one reasons people give for saying that they can't believe in God. And I would argue, and Tim Keller has argued this as well, it's not because of the suffering. It's because of the narrative and the expectations that we interpret the suffering through. See, the writer of Hebrews is saying, you think suffering proves you're not a child of God. Actually, it's just the opposite. You've got it completely upside down. If you let God's narrative define your experience, it changes things. But here's the thing. Everybody has a narrative that's interpreting their experience. And for a lot of people, they would say, if God is a good God, then suffering shouldn't exist. And if suffering exists, then he must not exists at all. That never, that never happened in the ancient world. It's not because suffering is different, it's because the narrative is different. What expectations, might I even say demands, do modern people bring to their consideration of God? C.S. Lewis wrote about this about 50 years ago, actually. He's a little ahead of the curve, like he often was, in an essay called God in the Dock. In the English legal system, the dock is the little box that the defendant sits in, in the court of law. And what he said is, unlike ancient man, which, who believed that man had to answer to God for how we've lived, modern man puts God in the dock and demands that he answer us. And where's the justification for that? We flip the script, and it's not made anything better. It's not made anything better. Well, I think the, the, the tragedy is often we would choose sin rather than suffering. We'd often trade knowing the love of Jesus more deeply through suffering than have our comfort disturbed. Remember what kind of father we have. Look at how it ends here. Lift your drooping hands. Don't despair. I love that. The father doesn't say, hey, toughen up. No, the, the Bible never just gives bare commands like that. It's always rooted in something about who he is or what he's done. Lift your drooping hands. Don't despair because your father cares. And your father, look at the next verse, is committed to healing. To healing. How are we to respond to discipline? Last point. We're not to make light of God's discipline. That's what it says there. Uh, where is it? Make light. 
don't make light. Ah, I lost it. Um, yeah, oh yeah, so it's verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. You know what that means? That means that we're to reflect on God's ways towards us. To not regard it lightly means you should actually ponder. Yes, we should cry out to God. He tells us, he invites us to do that. But we also are to reflect upon it. Because to fail to reflect on God and even the narrative that you may be putting him in will cause you to lose heart. Because unasked questions have a way of hardening your heart. So when discipline, when suffering comes, don't make light of it. Don't just try and you know, be like Woody Allen who said one time famously, I believe in the power of distraction. There's a lot of people that believe in the power of distraction. But the Bible says don't make light of it. Ponder who God is, what he might be doing. Reflect on God's ways towards us because at the moment, no discipline seems pleasant, right? That, that, that verb there, seems, shows that our initial impression is always going to be superficial and usually wrong, right? It's later that it produces fruit, even sometimes provoking us to wrestle with God. Who are you? Who are you, God, that you would even bring suffering and even make me raise all these questions about you and even want to, you know, beat your chest? Who, who is a God like that? Well, it's a God who loved us too much to stay in heaven where he had perfect peace and love. It's a God who loves us too much to stay at the fringes of our lives, whether we like it or not. That's the God we have. Let's pray.